Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Clones, what's cracking? Welcome to the Daily Jungle. Monday in the books. Busy, busy show. Started the week off in a great way. Albert Breer came in. He broke down the NFL draft. Solomon Thomas also made it in. Fresh off going number three to San Francisco, who had a huge draft. NASCAR's Joey Logano joined us fresh off his win in Richmond and the Preds. P.K. Subban joined us right in the middle of the Stanley Cup playoffs. It was that kind of a day. A ton of show. So let's get after it, Alvy. Roll it. Let's start with the L.A. Clippers. The L.A. Clippers. Remember I was here on Friday saying there's just no way they get that thing back home. No way they go into Salt Lake, get game six, force a game seven, bring it back here. And that's exactly what they did. But then they go out in the most Clipper way imaginable, going to Utah. They force that Game 7 in their own house, only to return home, flatline, get hammered, and go out in the first round to a lower seed once again. Gordon Hayward dribbles it out. Chris Paul, a free agent. Blake Griffin, a free agent. J.J. Redick, a free agent. And Doc Rivers with his arms crossed at half court wondering what the Clippers will be. But the focus here is on the Utah Jazz. The Utah Jazz are advancing to the second round for the first time in seven years. Jazz radio. So they do advance. And again, as far as the Clippers go, I mean, seriously, how the hell do you show up that flat for a game seven? A game seven in your own building. A game seven that could influence the entire direction and future of your franchise. But then again, this is who these guys are. This is what they do. Pretty much all the time. Same old Clippers. Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan win more than 60% of their regular season games every single year, and it doesn't mean a damn thing. Not only did they not reach the conference finals again, they didn't even make it out of the first round against a lower seed again. And now that it has happened again, I do love the question. Is the Clippers run over? (laughs) Is the Clippers run over? That's pretty hilarious. What run? Their run to the second round? They've never made any kind of legitimate run. No, the question is, is it time to break this crew up? And the answer obviously is yes. It doesn't work. The pieces don't fit. The chemistry is jacked. They've had their opportunities. J.J. Redick, who was completely taken out of the game last night by Utah, said it himself, calling the end of the season a, quote, reoccurring disappointment. If by reoccurring disappointment you mean another catastrophe, I'd agree with you, JJ. It's a reoccurring disappointment. And no, they're not getting closer. They're not getting better. They're just getting older. Bring them all back. For who? For what? So you can throw even crazier Jack at it to have the same exact result again and again? And I don't want to hear about how they get a pass because Blake Griffin got hurt. I'm not sure they even beat Utah with Griffin, and I know they sure as hell can't beat Golden State even with him. And no, he and they don't get a pass for that injury because that's part of the problem. He can't stay healthy. He's either breaking his hand, trying to break an equipment manager's face, or he's getting hurt legitimately. Either way, he's not there when they need him most. He's not reliable. They can't rely upon him. So not only do they not get a pass for this guy getting hurt again, His injury, or lack of durability in recent years, is a big part of why they are where they are right now. And why they do need to break it up. Look, if this thing was meant to be, it would have happened by now. But it hasn't. And they're not getting closer. Then again, that's just me. That's just me. 
Doc Rivers, on the other hand, might be able to convince Steve Ballmer that keeping this crew together really is their best chance for having any shot at winning anything. We'll figure that one out. You know, I'm thinking about the loss today instead of uh, the summer. I'm sure everyone will have their own suggestions. Uh, you know, we've been reading about our obituary for about three months now, so uh, I'm sure everyone will have that. Hey, look, I wouldn't do it. I would not keep that crew together, but Balmer might. But, and this is where it gets interesting, he might not be able to even if he wants to because it's not entirely his choice. Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, J.J. Redick, they're all unrestricted free agents. So even if Balmer wants them, they may not want him. Personally, I can't see Chris Paul going anywhere. He likes L.A., it's his team, he can make 200 mil for five years if he stays. I mean, sure, his postseason failures are a pretty big part of his legacy now, but is there really anyone out there who can offer him more than what he has here, other than a chance for a ring? Probably not. And if you're Chris Paul, all those other things will probably outweigh his desire for a ring. He's not going anywhere, even if he's unsure of who's going to be back with him. Luckily, that's not my job. You know what I mean? That's that's not my job. My job is to... uh, you know, come in, try to make sure I'm in the best shape possible, uh, try to lead our team and stuff like that. That's, that's not my job to maneuver who's here and who's there. So if I'm Palmer, I do keep Paul. He's still playing at a high level. Now, the Blake Griffin decision is not so cut and dried, nor is it a lock that he'll want to stay. Griffin enters free agency for the first time in his career, so you know he'll want the attention that comes along with being arguably the best free agent on the market. He also knows the Clippers will never be his team, not as long as Chris Paul is there, and that they're going to win. That they're not going to win anything that matters constructed the way they are. So he has a decision to make. Does he want to go somewhere where he can win big, or where he can be a number one, or would he rather stay, be a two, get paid, and then somehow, some way, try to squeeze a few more commercials out of some companies that don't mind throwing money at him, even though he's never won anything and he can't stay healthy? So Chris Paul is not going anywhere, but Blake Griffin might. He might. Remember, it's not just a matter of deciding whether or not they want him back. He has to decide whether or not he wants to stay with them. Same thing with J.J. Redick, who of the three is probably the most likely to leave. And then one more issue at the top. There is the question of Doc Rivers, who a number of Clipper fans want to blame for the whole debacle, saying that he's the one who put the whole thing together and that he was not able to coach them up. Like, I'm here to tell you, Doc's not going anywhere. I mean, leave for who? Orlando? You've probably seen that speculation. Sure, he's not. Not only is that not a better situation than the one he currently has, a better situation probably doesn't exist. Not when you consider how much money Doc is making. Not when you consider how much power he has in that organization. Hell no, Doc's not going anywhere. Only way he leaves is if Steve Ballmer asks him to leave and Ballmer still has confidence in him. The only reason Doc might consider leaving is if Ballmer strips him of his power. And that's not likely either. Blame Doc all you want, but he's not going anywhere. Albert Breer is my guest. Albert, great to have you back. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Jim? Good, good. Good visit. Albert, start with the Browns at the very top of the draft. They had lots of picks. They had lots of needs. And as well as the expectation that they'd probably blow it all by reaching for a quarterback. Now that it's all said and done, what do you make of their draft? Did they finally get it right? Well, they they certainly got three um, incredible athletes. And that's, I mean, not just Miles Garrett, but Jabril Peppers and David Joku are two guys who are, you know, maybe a little raw and need to have roles carved out for them early on in their careers, but guys who have 
really, really high ceilings. And then I think the news of the Browns is they punted on the quarterback position again. Now, I know they took Deshaun Kaiser in the second round. That's a lot different than taking one in the top ten. You know, and so they leave their options open at the quarterback position. Um, you know, they get another you know full draft class coming in. They get a first-round pick next year. And, you know, now the potential's out there that they could strike again in 2018 at the quarterback position, um, you know, in a year when Jimmy Garoppolo and Kirk Cousins could be available. And then you also be looking at a much better um, class of quarterbacks coming into the draft if Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen and Josh Allen develop the way a lot of people think they will. Yeah, Albert Breer joining us. All right, so all that said, that makes sense to me. Why take Kaiser? For instance, he falls to the number 52 pick. Is he the answer for them at quarterback, or when you're picking in that spot, does he not have to be the answer, and can they just wait to find out? No, he doesn't have to be the answer. I mean, I, does anybody remember? I, I, let me ask you this. Do you remember who the Carolina Panthers drafted the year before Cam Newton? Jimmy Clausen. Jimmy Clausen in the second round, right. I mean, the, the Jets took Geno Smith in the second round. I mean, this is, to me, you know, it, you take a quarterback in the second round, it's a dice roll. You know, you're going to be dating that guy. You're not marrying him. If you take a quarterback in the top ten, you're marrying that guy. You know, and, and so now you look and you see, you know, Ryan Pace drafting Mitch Trubisky second overall. Ryan Pace's job security is now tied to Mitch Trubisky. Um, you know, whereas with Sashi Brown and Hugh Jackson, their job security is not tied to Deshaun Kaiser. Um, you know, Kaiser's a guy who brings a lot of physical traits to the table. Obviously, there are some issues with him and, um, you know, and, and going four and eight last year at Notre Dame and you know, how well does he deal with it first and all that different stuff. Um, the fact is, you know, that was where he was worth a dice roll because at that point in the draft, again, you don't have to marry the guy. You're just dating him, um, you know, and, and, and that allows them to leave their options open where, you know, next year where the expectation is there's going to be a lot there would be a lot more options at quarterback and a lot more viable options at quarterback they could strike. Clones, let me take a minute of your time so I can talk to you about Ferguson. Ferguson helps facilities pros by supplying innovative and reliable products, but what Ferguson really offers are solutions. Ferguson has a dedicated team of facilities experts, and with nationwide coverage, we deliver directly to your facility right when you need them. Plus, Ferguson's broad inventory of maintenance, repair, and operations products, along with plumbing, HVAC, and appliances, sets Ferguson apart from traditional facility suppliers. So learn more about how Ferguson Facility Supply can help your facility at ferguson.com today. That's Ferguson. Now back to the Daily Jungle. Albert Breer joining us. He's a senior reporter at the MMQB. All right, Albert, what about the Bills? They fired GM Doug Whaley less than a day after he finishes the draft. One source described being in the room with the Bills during that draft as, quote, the weirdest three days, end <laughs> quote. What is your sense as to what things were like there? It was strange. It was definitely strange. You know, I, I, Doug Whaley was still running the draft, so he still had that seat in the room. But, um, you know, he wasn't able to operate the way a normal general manager does. And, and, and every single pick and every single move was being run by shot, run by run by Sean McDermott. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely a different atmosphere. And, you know, it's one guy coming in and the other guy on his way out the door. And really, I think the, you know, that, that feeling, having that atmosphere in the draft room encapsulates everything about what the Pagoulas have to do now. They have to find a way to align the organization. They haven't been able to do that. Obviously, there were issues with Doug Marone to the point where he, opted out of his contract in 2014. They bring in Rex Ryan. Rex clashes with Doug Whaley. 
Um, you know, and now, and, and we've seen it so many times, that coach-GM relationship can bring an organization down. I mean, now, as much as it is about hiring a really good scout to be their next general manager, I think it's about aligning their organization and finding a way where everyone's going to be on the same page. And it sounds easy, right, Jim? Like, it sounds like that'd be the easiest thing in the world. The truth is, is that, you know, with, with football people, it's, it's proven to be a challenge time and time again. Not the easiest thing to accomplish, but I think as much as is hiring a capable evaluator, hiring a GM that fits with with the new coach there, Sean McDermott, has got to be priority number one. When guys like Mixon and Westbrook are going where they go, what does that tell you about how teams view domestic violence? Well, you know, I think what I think in most cases it's you have to look in. I think in each of these, it's like as a case by case basis, right? So with West with Westbrook, there was a pattern of problems. Right, um, Dalvin Cook, like who you know wasn't convicted of domestic violence, was accused in one case, but had a string of arrests. There's a pattern there. You know, with Joe Mixon, the one thing you want to look at with him is what he did was horrible, reprehensible, and excusable. All of that, like, and it's just it's something he's never really going to be able to fully live down. But um, it happened three years ago, and there hasn't been a serious incident since then, and so. Uh, you know, I think that's a, the, the biggest piece of the puzzle here for all these teams is, is it an isolated incident or is it part of a pattern? And so where you see some tolerance is where, you know, it looks like the kid just messed up, you know, and, and, and I hate to put it that way because that sounds like it minimizes it, but where it looks like it was just kind of something that happened in their life that was out of character, out of whack, and and, and it's been – it's been put in the past, and, and now they're ready to move forward. You know, and they're two separate categories. And I think the, the, the best way to put it is, was it a bad moment or is he a bad guy? And I think that that's how teams try to separate it when they're looking at each of these cases. And I think, um, you know, at least in the Bengals' case, when they looked at, at Joe Mixon and they brought him into their building and they did all this work on him and everything else, what they found was it was a really, really bad incident. And I don't think, you know, anybody needs to tell anybody that, but – but but they didn't see him as a bad guy, and that you know at least informed them that they they felt like he could get by it. Hey, now I wonder, I wonder, Albert, can you can you strike a woman? Can you punch a woman in the face and be anything other than a terrible guy? Yeah, and I I, I know what you're saying, Jim, and that's the thing. It's like it'd be very, <laughs> I would have a hard time with it. I mean, I just tell you, if I was the one pulling the trigger, and thank God I'm not the one pulling the trigger on these sorts of decisions. But if I if if, if I was the one pulling the trigger, I. I'd, <laughs> I don't know what it would take for me to. Um, I don't know what it would take for me to be to, to be able to bring somebody who is capable of that into my building. Now, I mean, the other the other side to this, of course, is that the video changed everything. You know, and that um, you know through three years at Oklahoma, the talk of this sort of had quieted down. You know, but to, to the point where before the video came out in December, um, if you watched Oklahoma games, you weren't hearing a lot about you know, what Joe Mixon did in the summer of 2014 at all. And so, you know, part of this, of course, is that the video came out in December and that changes the dynamic of everything. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I, I think it's, I think it's, I think, I think it's difficult to wrap your arms around the idea of hiring somebody who's capable of something like that. And, you know, part of, part, part of all of this is doing research into, whether or not these are isolated instances or, 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 or part of some sort of bigger pattern with the player. Solomon Thomas is my guest. 
Solomon, great to have you on. How are you? I'm great, sir. How are you doing? Solomon, I'm great. It's great to talk to you. It's been a couple of days since you were drafted by the Niners, so I've got to ask, what have the last few days been like for you, and has it sunk in yet? You know, the last few days have been have been crazy. It's just amazing just to look back and be a part of such an amazing organization and coaching staff and team. So, you know, I'm still a little bit on cloud nine, but, you know, how to get back to work, got to get ready for a community camp, got to get ready to work with my teammates, be the best team I can be. But, uh, yeah, it's just been a whirlwind of just, just – just awesomeness. So I'm, I'm I'm happy right now, and I'm excited for the future with this team. A whirlwind of awesomeness. That's a great way to describe it. So tell me, when you get that phone call from John Lynch, where he says, Solomon, it's me, John Lynch. How you doing, buddy? Do you want to be a 49er? What's it like when you receive that call, and then what kind of emotions go through you? I mean, right as the phone rang, um, we had the landline phone light up in red, and uh, my uh, my hands just started shaking. You know, when when I got them. When I got put the phone in my hand, was breathing real heavy, was just trying to get words out of my mouth. I was, I was so excited, and um, when I heard the word words, "Hey, classmate," because of being John had a class together, um, I just got so much more excited. It was just like, wow, this is a perfect, perfect place for me, perfect team. So um, it was one of the best phone calls of my life, and just looking back on it, I, I, <laughs> it's crazy to think about. It's a, it's such a blessing. And, and uh, just such a great beginning to something new. Solomon Thomas joining us. I'm glad you brought that up. In terms of classmate, for those who don't know the story, you and John Lynch go back a little bit to your freshman year at Stanford and a management science and engineering class that the two of you took together. When he was finishing up his degree, the two of you worked on a project about the decision-making process to determine whether or not Washington's NFL team should change its nickname. What do you remember about John Lynch at that time? You know, I remember when I first met him, you know, I'm a football geek, I'm a football fan, so... I was like, oh, this is the dude who used to take people's heads off from the field. Like, this is John Lynch. It's crazy. So I was really excited. And um, just being able to go um, was just a, such a cool experience. Because he was coming back. He was way more mature than us. Knew how to study. Knew how to take notes. And I was just talking with uh, one of my teammates who was in the class of the day. Just, his presentation skills were ridiculous. Like, learning from him and how he presented and how he spoke and just got words across and his points across. That's what, that was probably what we learned about the most. So that was a great experience and a great role model for students. He's a good Stanford man. You're a good Stanford man as well. Solomon Thomas joining us. Now, when they selected you, they came back in the first round, and then they took linebacker Reuben Foster out of Alabama. You said that after spending about 10 minutes with Reuben, you could already tell that he was your brother. So what was it about the dynamic between the two of you that made you feel that way? You know, Reuben's just an awesome guy. You know, he's happy, smiley. You know, he's just, he's just a, he's a loving guy. and You click with him really easy. You know, I feel like he can get along with anyone. You know, he's funny, and you can just tell he loves football. You can tell that he just loves loves the life he lives. And I'm excited to get to know him even better and just play with him. I can't wait to play with the kid. Solomon, your story, your background is really, really interesting. For instance, when you were young, your family moved to Australia for five years because of your father's job at Procter & Gamble. What was that time in Australia like? That time was incredible. Just to be able to grow up in a different place, like, definitely broadened my horizon, my perspective just grew and grew, just, uh, just to be around different people, a different culture, um, being able to just see, see a different kind of life, you know. Um, it was awesome to go to the beach every day, to go travel out there, you know, go be just a fearless kid, not care about anything, just go swim with sharks in the Great Barrier Reef or, or like saltwater crocodiles and, and not and not be afraid. It was just looking back in those times, just, just I, I kind of – I'm like, what happened now? Because now I'm afraid of getting water with sharks. But I'm, I'll, I'll still get water with sharks. I'm, I'm a little bit more afraid with them when I was a kid. But it's just like, that was such an amazing experience.
right? Dude, there's yeah, sharks. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say there's sharks. You're supposed to be afraid of them. We're all afraid of sharks. So it, it's amazing, right? You're going to the beach. You're living the life. It's all good. And then you move back to the United States, and you end up in Texas. Is it true that before you moved to Texas, your parents made you watch Friday Night Lights? And if so, what did you make of it? Definitely. So we were showing our house in Connecticut, and it was a week before moving. And they said, well, we have to watch these two movies before we go to Texas. So it was Remember the Titans and Friday Night Lights. Well, we watched Remember the Titans in Texas. We watched Friday Night Lights in Connecticut before we moved. They said, we have to watch this before we go. And I was like, why is everyone, why is everyone going so crazy about this, this, this football game? <laughs> I was like, this seems a little dramatic. <laughs> and, and then, because I've never played the sport. I've, I've never played a team sport before moving to Texas. I was only a swimmer. And I never really, I didn't really know what football was growing up, so I was just confused, and I was like, "Well, this is this seems pretty serious." And as you know, it rises up to Texas. First weekend, people are asking, "Are you signed up for, for football? Are you, do you have your pads? Are you ready to go?" And so we had to sign up really quick and get ready to go. So, and I ended up loving it, learned the game. Um, and what I thought was special was that I never watching it so my love for football was pure like it generated off my own love and my own understanding of the game because I learned it as I went on it wasn't off of media off of what I see on TV so it was just like a pure love for the game that I generated that's why I love it so much yeah, but at the, same, I was say at the same time, though, because you didn't grow up with it, maybe that, that culture of it was not ingrained in you. For instance, when you would tackle guys early on, you didn't want to hurt them, so you'd pick them back up after you knocked them down. <laughs> Initially, what did your coaches make of that? They, they were really surprised. They're like, "What is he doing? Like, this is not a nice sport. This is not a a game where you where you pick up your opponent." And <laughs> so, <laughs> so somewhere along the lines, I developed that mean streak. I developed that dog in me, where I was like, "You know, I don't care about you. I don't care how you feel, how you hurt. I'm gonna put you on the ground and then keep you there. And I'm gonna look at you while I do it." So that's kind of <laughs> that's how it went. <laughs> what the hell are the Mets and Noah Syndergaard doing? He was supposed to have an MRI MRI today. After leaving yesterday's game against the Nationals in the second inning, after he grimaced in pain on back-to-back pitches, an MRI after he reportedly refused one just days earlier. I mean, the whole thing is so bizarre and so in character for the Mets. In character, they had already pushed his start back Thursday, after he had been unable to lift his left arm above his shoulder only a couple of days earlier, which led to yesterday's start. A start which was preceded by a headline which actually read, quote, Mets face more injury drama as Syndergaard refuses MRI and plans to start Sunday, end quote. Like this guy just made that decision himself. The Mets could not have butchered that any worse than they did. The guy can barely lift his shoulder. He tells the team reportedly he's not getting an MRI, and they still give him the ball. Of course, the guy didn't make it out of the second inning. And you think maybe, maybe since you know he's not right because he couldn't lift his arm a few days earlier, you see him out there in the second inning grimacing badly after one pitch. I don't know, maybe you go out and check on him before you let him throw another pitch? He is your ace, he is your franchise pitcher. Or better yet, better yet, you don't have your ace in that situation in the first place. GM Sandy Alderson had an explanation but the explanation was as bad as the decision to let this guy pitch in the first place. He felt strongly that uh, he was fine. Um, we made sure that he threw again uh, before he went out. 
so that we could confirm that, and uh, that's what happened. The uh, you know preliminary diagnosis was uh, a possible lat strain, uh, which may or may not be related to his previous complaint, which was in the bicep. So we'll just have to wait and see uh, what happens tomorrow. Well, you want to talk about some ass covering? We asked him, and he said he was fine. We saw him pitch. He looked pretty good, so we let him go out there. And then he gives you a diagnosis that he says may or may not be related to the original. Well, you want to talk about covering your own backside, and maybe it's not, or maybe it is. Maybe it's the same thing, or maybe it's compensation from the first one. I know this. I don't think you want to have your ace going all orthopedic surgeon with it and diagnosing himself. Hey, listen, I get that guys think they know their own bodies better than anybody else. I get that pitchers are conditioned to grind through tired or even dead arms. But it's your franchise pitcher. What the hell are you going to do? Run this guy, or what are you doing running him out there in April just days after he couldn't lift his arm, and you know there's got to be something wrong with him? And again, we're talking about a shoulder a shoulder for your franchise pitcher. Why are you taking any sort of chance with your franchise pitcher? And why are you letting him diagnose himself? And then again, even worse, it's not like it's the only guy that this has happened to recently. This happened only days after the team cleared Uenis Cespedes to play after he tweaked his hamstring. And no sooner than he took the field, he injured himself again prompting manager Terry Collins to say we should have put him on the DL. We didn't. He didn't think it was necessary and thought he was going to be able to play. Now he's going to be out for a while, end quote. So they literally made the same mistake with another guy days earlier. He said it himself. He thought that he could play. Oh, you mean like Syndergaard thought that he could play? thought that he didn't need an MRI, thought that he was fine to take the ball. Yeah, well, he wasn't either. And Terry Collins seemed to know that himself. Threw 100. He was throwing 100. I saw nothing wrong physically. You seem pretty upset yourself, though, even in the second. You think? Yeah, just, what was your kind of... What do you think? You seem pretty upset yourself. You think? You think? You think? You think? Okay, let's not bring the family into this, first of all. And yes, he seems pretty upset. Why wouldn't he be? He's lost a couple of key players who seemingly the team let decide for themselves whether or not they should play. Ask any athlete with any pride and any heart. They're pretty much going to say they're fine. They're going to want to be out there. Of course, these guys want to play. And I respect it. I respect it, but you cannot leave the decision up to them because more often than not, they'll make a decision that hurts both them and the team. And the Mets better hope that that's not the case here and that it doesn't derail their season because they've got no one to blame but themselves for the way they handled these two situations. Oh, and this just in, Syndergaard was placed on the DL with, quote, no timetable for return. You saw Terry Collins. You heard how upset he was. He's not the only one. Mets fan is not taking this well, as you might imagine. Now, I'll tell you something else about Mets fan. They start them early in the Apple, really early. Check out this kid. Now, this kid shows up on Instagram. I'm not sure how old this kid is. If I had to guess, I'm going to say 11, maybe 12, maybe 12. 
Certainly no older than 13. This kid's got to be maybe 12. Maybe 12, but he already sounds like he's lived through decades and decades of Mets misery. Listen to how miserable this little kid is. If this kid is this miserable at this age, imagine what he's going to be like and look like and sound like when he's 50. Again, I saw this on Instagram. This kid's maybe 12. Oh my God, we won two out of three. Big deal. This team is an absolute f***ing joke. 23 to 8. Syndergaard, get out of here, you little Barbie doll. Get the f*** out of here. Go get your, go get a little robotic arm. Because you can't even stay two innings for this team without getting hurt. You f***ing idiot. It's all Ray Ramirez's fault, that f***ing mole face. Get him out of here. You got Kevin Blueckie getting absolutely rocked. I mean, you know it's bad when you can put the f***ing, the bench, the backup catcher in there. Like, damn, get the hell out of here and go to the minor leagues, boy. Terry, it's over for you, you little sh head. You little orange, you smoking sh. You just need to fing get out of here. Because I'm not I'm not liking what I'm seeing from this team. 23 to 8, Terry. Better wake this team up. He's got an account full of videos. So either the folks don't know what Junior's up to, or they endorse it heartily. P.K. Subban is my guest. P.K., nice to have you back. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to have you. Great to have you. All right, so far, so good. You're out to a 2-1 lead in that series. You're personally playing at a very high level right now. What's the mood like in that room and with your team? Well, it's the same. You know, um, it, you know regardless of whether we've gone through ups and downs as a team, we, we remain confident and uh, our focus now is just on the next game because it's just as important as the first as the first three were. You know, I tell you what I'm really struck by the fact that you've got your defenseman jumping into the play. At least one defenseman has been part of 12 of the past 13 goals that the team has scored going back to Game Four of the sweep of the Blackhawks. So, what's that say about the skill and the ability that you guys have behind that blue line? Yeah, we know that we have a lot of mobility and skill in our defense, but I, I think it's our collectively as a group it's the way we use each other and play with each other and uh it's not just us it's our forwards as well there have been times during the season where maybe our defense weren't able to be as act be as active because we, we didn't play as a five-man unit and i think now we're we're playing our best hockey because of our ability to play as a five-man unit and move from our defensive zone through the neutral zone into the offensive zone and and play that way and i think that's been a huge part of our success PK, it seems like your game has gone to another level in the playoffs. As an example, in game one of the series, you had a goal and two assists in the win, which took place on the seventh anniversary of your playoff debut back in 2010, where you really made a name for yourself. I mean, can you consciously flip a switch and dial it up, or is it something that just happens because of the intensity of the playoffs and the way that ramps up? Uh, you know what? I, I just think personally for my myself, I've always been the, the type of guy that, you know, wants to relish the, the big games and the big moments. And, you know, my favorite athletes in the world are all athletes that rise to the occasion and perform their best in the big games and, you know, in their sports, whether it's, you know, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, or, or, or Tom Brady, or, you know, athletes like that, they always show up in, in the clutch moments. So I always try to just elevate my game and, and do my job and be the best that I can in those moments. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the air sports. Let me ask you something. Maybe you can help me out with this. 
In the NBA playoffs yesterday, Isaiah Thomas from the Celtics had his front tooth knocked out. Team doctors tried to shove it right back in there, but it didn't work. I mean, you play in a sport where a lot of guys get their teeth knocked out. Have you ever seen somebody jam it back in? I mean, does that work, or do you have to go to a dentist no matter what to get it fixed? Um, I've never seen that happen, but you see a lot in hockey, and I've definitely seen guys lose teeth in hockey and uh, or even in practice. You know, it's happened a lot, but... Uh, you know he's a tough he's a tough guy and and you know for a guy his size to play as hard as he does and be as successful as he is at that sport uh, shows how tough he is. So I'm not surprised that that he he could battle through something like that. But I think usually what they try to do is just stop the bleeding until after the game where you can go see a dentist and then get everything fixed up. P.K. Subban joining us. I appreciate your thoughts on that. Now, one of the things you've also said is we talk about leadership in this league and leadership's not being the guy standing up and talking in the room all the time or shooting your mouth off. Leadership is grabbing the guys, bringing them together, and letting them know that, hey, we are what we think we are, end quote. So how do you go about sending that message to the rest of the team? Is it with words or is it with actions? Well, that's that was kind of like our, our, our you know, our captain slogan and from Fish. That was what we said at the start of the year is that he, he said that we are going to be what we think we are. And I think that that's such a true statement in, in professional sports. A lot of times, you know, you see teams that, you know, are great teams, but never, you know, accomplish what they're supposed to. And the reality, it comes down to what you think about yourselves in that dressing room. And uh, we think that we're an amazing team and the best team. And um, but at the end of the day, you have to go and execute that. And I think that, you know, sometimes leadership can be misconstrued, but the leadership that we have in our dressing room and in this organization is second to no one. And uh, it starts with a guy like Mike Fisher and an experienced guy who's played a long time who understands what it takes to be successful and, and how to lead a team. And, and he's done a great job. But collectively as a group, we have a ton of leaders and uh, we echo everything that he echoes. So, uh, you know, but it starts there. Nashville and St. Louis tomorrow night, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You know, there's a hockey bar in Montreal that has been renamed in your honor during the playoffs. The owner said, quote, there's a lot of love going his way. He's a great man and a great player. The city misses him. We love our team and we love our guy. And if he wants to bring the cup to the bar, I'd be more than happy to have him, end quote. I understand that you've got a lot of work to do before something like that could happen. But what's it mean to you to hear that from somebody like that? You know, it's it's very humbling, and and you know, in my in my time in Montreal, it was it was it's a very humbling and emotional experience because of the support and how sincere the support was from the fan base there towards me in the community, and um, you know, I, I don't ever take that for granted. You know, that, that support and the passion for the fans that they've had for me, and and you know, while I was there, and uh, to see someone do something like that's pretty cool, especially at a place as popular as, as Chasers. So, um, you know, it was, uh, a, it's, it's a huge honor. And, um, uh, but obviously there's a lot of work left to be done and, uh, you know, just got to take it one step at a time, but, uh, you know, it's, it's truly remarkable the support that I continue to get from the fans and, uh, you know, my fans in Montreal and, and, and in Quebec, it's, uh, pretty amazing. Hey, PK, one last thought. There was an internet mystery over the weekend, of course. Dak Prescott was at the Preds game in a Preds sweater. What's the background there? Nobody could figure out why he was repping the team or how that came to be. Yeah, well, you know what? I actually had an opportunity uh, 
you know, through a friend and, and somebody on his representation team, uh, they reached out to me after the game and, and, and he had asked for my number. So we connected and I stopped by a restaurant to see him uh, after the game because, uh, you know, I don't think it's any secret that I'm a huge, huge Cowboys fan. And, uh, you know, even though I still support our Tennessee Titans, I've always been a Cowboys fan my whole life. So to meet him was pretty amazing and pretty, pretty cool experience. But, uh, you know, I think that he may have a friend that he went to school with that does work at the Preds. So, you know, he and his and uh, a friend of his came to the game, and and they were uh, in Preds jerseys, and I think it's just pretty cool. I mean, you know, listen, I, I'm a Toronto Raptors fan, but if I go to a Lakers game, I'll probably wear a Kobe Bryant jersey. So, you know, I I hope fans aren't making that too big of a deal out of it. I think it's it's, it's kind of stupid, but you know what? It, just to have his support there and and be a fan and uh, was pretty cool. And and you know, he's 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 an all star, you know, in the NFL now. So. It's pretty cool meeting him and having him there. Game respects game. I see you working. St. Louis at Nashville tomorrow. P.K. Subban, an all-star and Olympic gold medalist and a Norris Trophy Award winner, our guest. P.K., great to have you back. Thanks for doing that right in the middle of the series, too, on an off day. Really nice to have you on the show. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks a lot, Romer. Joey Logano joins us. Joey, it's good to have you on. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How about you today? Good, Joey. Great. Good to visit with you. Hey, go back to the start of yesterday's race. Why don't we start there? You had qualified fifth, but you had to start 37th after making a transition or a transmission change. Knowing that, what was your mindset going into the race? <laughs> Only one way to go. <laughs> that was pretty much my thought. Uh, you know, um, you know, those things happen every now and again. We had some uh, metal shavings uh, when they changed the transmission oil before the race, and um, usually that means something's falling apart inside the transmission. So uh, if you change the transmission, the penalty is you got to start in the back and you lose your starting position. So uh, we started in the back, and uh, mindset was drive forward. And, um, you know, we slowly, methodically did that. It took us the whole race to get to the front, but we got to the front just about at the right time and had the right strategy at the end uh, to put tires on and get the, the track position. And um, Pickery did a good job, you know, executing under pressure there and, uh, you know, putting us in position to, to follow through and, and put the car in victory lane. Joy Logano is the driver of the 22. See, the thing about that is you're somebody who's not afraid to be aggressive on the track. You yourself have said, quote, you're a balls-to-the-wall type of guy. You're going to go as hard as you can all the time. But your crew chief, Todd Gordon, said that they mentioned to you before the start of the race that running at 80% was probably the way to go since you were starting at the very back. What was your reaction when they said that? Yeah, and he, he probably knows even when he says 80%, I'm still going to run 90%. But, uh, you know, it, it, Richmond is one of those racetracks. The, the, the track is very abrasive to the tire, and it wears the tires out really quick. So if you run really hard on the front side of a run, uh, you end up paying that penalty throughout the run to where you're actually going to be slower overall at the end of the run. So, um, you know, kind of taking it easy on your car early on, on a run of a, a fuel run you're able to actually go faster at the end of it. So, um, But it was nice at the end of the race. There's only 20 laps to go. It, it falls to the wall at that point. And he, he lets me loose. He cuts the cuts the reins loose and lets me run. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those racetracks that, you know, for me is challenging because I am that type of guy that wants to go 110% every single lap. But, uh, you know, I'm able to hold myself back a little bit with a little bit of help. <laughs> well, then on top of that, what about the elements? I mean, some crews were reporting in-car temps of 141 degrees. What were the conditions like for you on the track and in the car? Yeah, it's hot. It's real hot. <laughs> it's uh, pretty toasty for sure. And um, But I tell you what, when your car is driving good and you're able to, to you know take the lead at the end, uh, you know, it, it doesn't even matter at that point. But it's crazy. You know, we get to wear these 
you know, heart rate monitors and stuff now this year that the, the NASCAR just legalized for us. And um, it's crazy to see how your heart rate keeps jumping up as the race goes. And, you know, I peaked out at 180 uh, beats yesterday at the end of the race. When you're, when you're running as hard as you can and you're in the set intense and you're, you're trying to fight that heat off uh, as well, it's, uh, it's definitely a lot on the body. Uh, throughout the day and, and it takes a couple of days to recover and, and get yourself rehydrated after uh, sitting in a sauna for three hours you know yeah for sure joy logano joining us so i mean are you aware of your heart rate and if so do you make any adjustments during the race itself with everything else you have going on um you know, during the race i don't pay too much attention to it because there's not much i can do about it um you know at that point it's just you're trying to focus in on you know trying to you know run as, as the, the cleanest and smoothest laps you can work the traffic uh, give that data back to your crew chief to try to make the right decisions to your car. Um, but it is something I learned from after the race and just try to, you know, understand where I'm at, where to train, um, you know, and how to focus in when you're, you know, at the end of the race, right? Because that's when you got to be your freshest and be your best at the end. That's when the pay window opens up. So you got to be the best right then. So it's it's a matter of, you know, training yourself to be able to, um, you know, find that extra gear at the end of the race, you know, internally as a driver. And that is when the pay window opens up. Joy Logano joining us for a few more moments. Yesterday was your 300th career start. What's it mean to you to reach 300 starts and then to celebrate that with a win? Yeah, it was neat. Um, you know, the crazy thing about it is it's been six drivers that have won on their 300th start, which I think is an amazing stat. But um, you know, for, for me, 300 starts is, is a nice accomplishment. It's not a huge deal compared to some of the amount of starts that other drivers have uh, in the series, but the fact that I was able to do it at 26 years old is, uh, is a nice accomplishment. And, and thinking about, you know, another, you know, eight or nine years, uh, you know, being 600 starts in, and, and then you start thinking about some of the records that you can start catching up to. And um, that's, that's a pretty neat, uh, you know, thing to think about. But that's a long ways down the road. Uh, you know, for me, I like thinking about wins more than starts. I think starts are more like participation awards that don't really mean a whole bunch. Uh, it's all about the trophies at the end. So, uh, you know, overall, the, to win on your 300 start was, was pretty special. Well, you've got 18 wins in the 300 starts, and you also won the All-Star Race and the Clash, which they do hand out trophies for. So I could even argue that you've got 20 wins. You know, it is curious when you remind us that you are still just 26. So how different are you as a driver now than when you made your first career start? Oh, well, a complete 180. I couldn't be any, any more different, in all honesty. And, um, and it, all to the good, I think. Um, you know, when I first started racing, you know, in the Cup Series, I was 18 years old. And, um, you know, I'm sure anyone that's listening remembers when they're 18 years old to, to when they were 26 and the transition they go through, right? And you start to kind of find yourself and what works for you. And, um, you know, not only am I trying to find that out personally, but I was trying to find that out inside a race car. Um, and what works for me as far as a team around me, um, how to handle situations, and, and you got to grow a lot. So, um, you know, for me, I was uh, able to do that kind of in the limelight, which is a, a little different than, than normal, but, um, you know, I was able to take a lot of that experience and, and, and really learn a lot from it. So, and, and really, you know, have the opportunity to make those mistakes, which is a good thing. You know, if you can make mistakes and learn from them, there's nothing wrong with that. So, uh, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to make mistakes. Back to the phones. Let's go to Salt Lake City. Zach. Hi, Zach. How are you? Hey, Rome. How's it going? Good. You? Good. I just wanted to call in and uh, say good job, good effort to those clips and their group on ticket buying fake fans. Also want to give a shout out to my boy, Jingling Joe Ingles. He looks like your neighbor, but he shoots like Larry. The Jazz are officially taking on any bag wagon LA fans who want to roll. 
So go to your barber and ask for the Gordon. It's trending. And we all know you L.A. peeps love trends. Now we're on to play the greatest show on Ardwin. I'd love to shout out the top of my lungs that anything is possible, but i got to be realistic. In the end, whatever happens, happens. NBD, Romy, because in Utah, we have good families and mountains. So suck on that, L.A. Rack him. Let's go to Indianapolis. Al in Indy. Good afternoon, Al. What's going on? How are you? Uh, Jim, I'm doing well. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to tell you a story about the tooth extraction thing. I was um, coming out of the original Rocky movie back in the 70s in a small theater up in Maine, whatever year it was, I think 76, 77. 76. And started um, shadow boxing with a friend of mine. And all of a sudden, bang, I mean, this guy hits me. Not hard, but he hits me. And I thought, you know, this... I think my tooth is gone. I looked down on the on the sidewalk, and it's sitting there. It's the tooth next to the big one. It's I mean, it's chiclet down. It's out. It's in, and the other thing that's crazy is, it's long. So you don't think that the thing is really big. So my first reaction was, run back into the theater, wash this thing off, and and put it back in. That's what I did. I couldn't get it completely all the way up, but I just rammed it up there as far as it would go. And I called 911. What's going on? Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you. Hit subscribe. Tell a friend. Trust the podcast. Then check back tomorrow for more Daily Jungle. We'll see you then. We're out. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.